Good morning. Welcome to the Snake River Lib podcast. There's so much to cover, and I apologize for the lateness of it. I actually did one Monday night, but made the mistake of listening to it and realized I could not put that out. So I apologize. Um, Forgive me. Here we are on the 12th of January. We're six days past the date that we'll live in uh, infamy, according to Kamala Harris, the vice president regarding the uh, uh, January 6th insurrection. Um, Yesterday, uh, President and Vice President, etc., they went to Georgia to tout and try to push their voting rights bill. Now, Georgia's, I'm not sure why they went there. Um, Georgia, of course, uh, the scene of Jim Crow 2.0, which, by the way is far more lenient to voters than the state of Delaware's voting restrictions. Uh, As far as ease of access, extended voting days, which I disagree with, um, expansion of uh, absentee ballots, uh, which I also disagree with, and drop boxes. Yes, in Georgia, Jim Crow 2.0 includes drop boxes. Um, In Delaware, you have to show photo ID. In Delaware, you have to have proof that you're going to be out of the state for voting to get an absentee ballot. And there's no such thing as drop boxes. Many, many blue states, by the way, have restrictions that are more significant than Georgia's. Uh, revision. So all that is is a political ploy. But guess, guess, guess who was not there? Now, I've not talked much about Stacey Abrams other than the fact that she's the poster child for the left is shoveling it when they talk about Trump refusing to concede because of her refusal to concede in the Georgia governor race in 2018. Um, she did not want to be, she's trying to run for governor again this year. Um, she did not want to be anywhere near the toxic waste dump that is, uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris's poll numbers. Of course, the president was there to tout his voting rights bill or his keep the people in Washington in power forever bill, because that's what it is. It essentially eliminates any vestige of federalism, at least in regards to uh, the electoral process. It takes control of all facets of elections away from the states. It gives it to the federal government. Of course, the problem with that is that If you don't stay in charge, once you've set that precedent, it could easily just be turned around and and, uh, all sorts of things could happen. So the president is out there uh, advocating for something that the Democrats used over 300 times, nearly 400 times in 2020, and that's the filibuster. Uh, So, of course, if you remember 2020, uh, prior to the election, 
actually prior to the runoff election um, in 2021, the Republicans had the majority in the Senate. And during that time, the Democrats used the filibuster over 320 times. Now, now think about that for a moment. Now, Congress only meets usually four days a week when they're in session. So that's over. That's just a titch over two hundred days, and they're not in a set. They're not in session every week. And so, if you think about the filibuster and what its purpose was, and we're going to highlight this after I come back from the break, um, but. The whole purpose behind the filibuster, of course, is to is to force a broad consensus for legislation um, that uh, will, I want to say, reach across the aisle. But back in the day, it was not necessarily so much by party as it was by uh, area, um, you know, part of the country you're from, et cetera, because. Uh, we all well know, of course, the, the Democrats filibuster of 1964-65 regarding the civil rights legislation and how it was the majority of Republicans that voted to advance that legislation. Republicans, of course, consistently been on the rights of civil on the right on the side of civil rights, um, with uh, the former then former Senate Majority Leader uh, Lyndon Johnson fighting civil rights in the 50s. Uh, Eisenhower put forward a, a, a bill, and it was ultimately watered down to the point that it was meaningless. Uh, Lyndon Johnson turns around and, uh, after the death of Kennedy and champions uh, civil rights and voting rights, etc. But we'll go into a little bit of philosophy on that later. Because there's a lot more news of, of the day to go on. Um, January 6th. Did want to talk about that for quite a little bit. Simply because there are, are a lot of th working pieces in that. For example, the Capitol Police officer that shot Ashley Babbitt, who was the only person that died as a result of the riots, or as the left calls it when it's their side doing a peaceful protest of January 6th. Um, has not cooperated in an investigation. In fact, he refused to uh, give a statement on the shooting. And so how they were able to determine that no criminal charges should be filed is beyond me. Now, yes, I mean, we did not even get with him to the point of him taking the Fifth Amendment, meaning his right to remain silent, because it was never, never approached the point of criminal charges. But he is a federal employee. As a federal employee in a, in a potentially disciplinary hearing, you have to, you are compelled to at least give a statement. And that 
compelling can be up to and including termination of employment if you do not. He said he wasn't going to issue a statement, so they dropped it. The D.C. Metro Police um, did not pursue it. The Department of Justice did not pursue it. So Ashley Babbitt was killed point-blank range by a police officer who was unharmed. And the reason I mention that is during the riots, sadly, 140 Capitol policemen were injured, Capitol police officers were injured as a result of the riots. 140. None of them discharged their weapons with the exception of the one who was not injured. But yet he feared for his life a woman coming through a broken window. There are witnesses that testify that there was no stop or I'll shoot warning. And so there's that question. To me, that's very, very powerful. Having having been a, a controller, federal uh, uh, employee, as well as in management uh, with federal government, I find the fact that he was allowed to not even give a statement appalling. And how is he still working for the federal government? Well, it would have been a little bit uncomfortable if he had been guilty of something. Also about January 6th, since we're on the subject, and I chose to be on the subject, you know, the only people that are making hay of this besides the Lib, of course, or, 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 or and the Lib's not making hay of it, we're just pointing out some of the distinctions. Um, the chairman of the, the, the circus trial regarding January 6th, that they've already uh, issued contempt charges to various former Trump officials who refused to go and testify, including uh, the chief of staff who originally went and testified, but um, when they started pressing for more information that should be considered privilege, uh, executive privilege, um, he declined to testify further. Guess who's not testifying? The sergeant of arms. Or rather, he may have testified, but here's a question that was not asked. Is, did the Trump administration offer National Guard troops, upwards of 20,000, in the days leading up to January 6th, to help secure the Capitol? What we do know, or what we suspect we know, is that, is that the Capitol Police, which is ultimately ran by the Speaker of the House, 
refused. As did, by the way, the Washington Metro Police through the mayor of Washington, D.C. She also declined soldiers. But we're not going to ask those questions. Because just like the one government function that is constitutional, securing the borders, this administration has shown a complete disdain for the one thing they are actually supposed to do. So apparently did the Speaker of the House and the Mayor of Washington, D.C. refuse to protect the lives and property that they are stewards for. Now, while you can say that the committee, the Circus Trial Committee, is bipartisan because you have two Republicans on it, to say that it meets the definition of bipartisanship because uh, both parties were involved is a farce. Uh, Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy submitted names for the committee before it was formed. Two of the names, Jim Jordan of Ohio and Jim Banks, I think, of Indiana, but don't quote me on the second one, were rejected by the Speaker of the House. And because it was obvious that this was not going to be a true fact-finding committee because they would not let anybody on the committee. Uh, Minority Leader McCarthy withdrew all the other names. And so the only two members of the committee that are nominally, and I say that very, very broadly, Republican, are both severe uh, TDS sufferers. one of whom is not running for re-election this year because their district was essentially wiped out in Illinois, and the other one who likely will not survive a primary. But they give cover for the Democrats and the sheen of bipartisanship. I'll be right back. And here we are back. Um, We have new inflation numbers out. No surprise there. Um, They think they're trying to make it all about the supply chain. And while it's true that while it's true that um, a lack of goods is a problem. What's a bigger problem is government pumping dollars out with nothing to back them. And so uh, we're up to 7% inflation, which is 
uh, early 80s, late 70s numbers, highest in 40 years. Now, anyone that's watching, I, I will tell you this, that while I am way late, it was inevitable that this would happen. Anytime you have deficit spending uh, by the federal government, or any government for that matter, you're going to have, sooner or later, inflation is going to come knocking. And it wasn't until they really, really ramped it up in the last two years, and that includes under Donald Trump as well, um, that inflation really started getting steamed and over. Now, mind you, all during the, the pandemic, people who were lost their jobs, whether their business is closed or, or perhaps they're an entrepreneur and their business is permanently closed, these people perhaps were given enough to eke by. I would say that not everyone, apparently, um, because many, many businesses folded. But but uh, perhaps you were unemployed, and so you were given enough to eke by. You know, the government would rather have you looking for your next loaf of bread rather than for a way to actually improve your situation. And so if you keep people hungry, if you keep people living right on the edge of homelessness, etc., or perhaps they are homeless, but you give them enough so that they are somehow subsisting, they're not going to try and be an entrepreneur. They're not going to try to strike out on their own. If they've got a job, they're going to hang on to it. And they're going to will be willingly uh, put up with all sorts of crap at it because at least it's a job. Um, wanted to talk about more about the filibuster and where the lib has been and is on the filibuster. Now, from the conception of the lib back in 2014, uh, certainly leading up as uh, politics have become much more interesting. Uh, partisanship is worse than it's ever been. Well, no, that's not true. You go back to the Civil War, of course, and, and such, and you have some severe partisanship then, as well as even the 1950s. Um, but then it wasn't so much, partisanship was not necessarily a, a issue of party so much as it was sides. Because you had many Democrats, of course, that were anti-communist. You had many Democrats that, that were uh, libertarian. You had many Republicans that were big government Republicans and you had big government and you had very libertarian Republicans. Back then it was more of the individual and the state that he hailed from he or she hailed from. Since then many of those people that that were 
perhaps an anti-communist Democrat or a big government Republican, although really all Republicans are big government except for maybe a small few. Oh, did I mention about how apparently the some uh, emails from Fauci seem to collaborate the fact that um, there was a huge push to to craft the conspiracy idea that the COVID was developed in a lab. Fauci actually was directly behind that. Surprise, right? No. Did you know he made $434,000 last year? I think that's more than the president makes. Federal employee. Um, filibuster. So, filibuster... Uh, Originally, I have to go before the filibuster, actually. The Senate, for those that don't know, the Senate was crafted as a, uh, was set up to where all states were equally represented. It's a counterbalance to the House. And in the Senate, the Senate was actually to represent the state governments. So where the House was elected by the people, and they represented the people, meaning their individual districts, the Senate was appointed by state legislatures to represent the state government. And so while you may have some madcap ideas in the House about this, that, or the other, in reality, the Senate was supposed to be where there was a cooling off, where there was a, a rational debate of course we know that people are people and and you know that 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 the senate was every bit the hotbed i'm sorry not to the extent of the house but you certainly had many raucous debates there the filibuster is an oratory device designed to give voice to the minority so that when you have legislation that the minority feels strongly enough about to be against somebody will get up and will start speaking and if you want to see a good example of that uh, i would recommend uh, jimmy stewart and mr smith goes to washington It was a device that was used where the Senate was essentially stopped to avoid legislation that had a narrow majority from going forward, going forward, forcing the Senate to perhaps read, reach a broader consensus, more a little bit more compromise to achieve the goals because in reality if you've got a large enough group of representatives of the various states against legislation that you cannot even craft a a supermajority which originally was two-thirds which is what it takes to override a veto then probably that legislation should not be going to the president's desk 
And so that was the purpose of the filibuster. Now, it required some effort on the part of the minority. for a person to stand on the floor of the Senate and speak, to hold up debate on any on a vote, because senators were allowed to speak during a debate, and, and uh, the floor debates, which are non-existent anymore, have, have yielded to a series of you know, five- or two-minute speeches, which are done usually to an empty chamber. Now there's no debate. Usually by the time something comes out of committee, there may be some amendments voted on, but there's very little debate. And there's certainly no actual filibuster as was crafted. And this is where the problem with the abuse of the filibuster began. And it began during the 1970s. You know, you would, with the aftermath of the Nixon, uh, non-impeachment, but the resignation and Watergate and such, you know, the Democrats thought that they could ride roughshod and get what they wanted. Sound familiar? Um, but as it turns out, they were not able to do that. And so the Senate Majority Leader at the time uh, uh, proposed uh, uh, some changes to the filibuster. They went from a 67-vote to a 60-vote supermajority. And they also crafted the idea of reconciliation where certain bills that had to get passed could not be filibustered. So bills having to do with uh, spending and taxation. There was also one other thing that they did. Rather than have a senator stand on the floor of the Senate and hold up debate because nothing else was getting done. The filibuster just became an administrative tool where the minority leader, usually, would go to the majority leader and say, we're going to filibuster this. The majority leader would do a count to see if there was any way he could squeeze, he or she could squeeze 60 votes out to override the filibuster. And if he couldn't, then they would set that legislation aside and move to some other pending business. This, in my view, was an abomination. Because what you've done is you have essentially stopped any meaningful debate. Now, you might say, and I know you're going to say this, especially if you're against the filibuster, you're going to say, what kind of debate can you have when somebody stands up on the floor of the Senate for hours and hours? And I would say this. If somebody is passionate enough to take to the floor of the Senate and speak for hours and hours and hours, then you should probably reexamine your legislation. You see, none of the bills that we've been talking about this year, Build Back Better, the, the voting boondoggle, etc., are at all bipartisan. 
by any stretch of the imagination. We'll go back to, you know, Republicans and do the same thing. So this is not, Democrats are more likely to abuse the power than Republicans. That's proven. After all, 2020, they did it over 300 times. 300 times, remember, assuming they met every week, which they didn't, you're, you're only talking about 220 days, 210 days. So how many, fill, that's over one filibuster a day. To stop debate. Stop debate. That's what it was designed for. It was also designed because the, the, the physical aspect of the filibuster, the actual getting to the floor of the Senate and speaking, as which also, you have to remember, says to at least that senator, that issue is more important than any other pending issue because all business of the Senate stopped. until the filibuster was resolved. And so while the senator would speak, the minority and majority leader would get together and they would talk about, okay, what can we do to get this to end? Because we have other stuff to do. And so some sort of compromise would either be worked out or... The, the person speaking, his own party or her own party would have had enough and would vote to just move on with the debate. But because the filibusters aren't real anymore, there's no incentive to try to work things out. There's no incentive to try to um, reach a compromise. To, to either shelve the bill because it just doesn't have it, because that's what they do now. That's what where Build Back Better is right now. Hopefully that's where the voting rights bill will be. I say hopefully because the end of the filibuster depends on at least one Democrat. And as a reminder, you point out that when Democrats are in power, they hate the filibuster. When Republicans are in power, Democrats love the filibuster. Conversely, when Republicans are out of power, they love the filibuster. And when Republicans are in power, meaning in the majority, they don't get rid of it. They don't even talk about it. They did talk about it for judges simply because filibustering judges was unprecedented. But but in general, Republicans are against getting rid of the filibuster, whether they are in the majority when they could have gotten rid of it or in the minority when they are using it. Contrast that with the Democrats. When Democrats are in the majority, the filibuster is a racist tool, and when they're in the minority, is an essential tool to bring uh, bipartisan consensus to uh, legislation. I've talked a little bit longer than I wanted to, and I apologize for that, except I don't. I hope that this has been informative for you to understand what's at stake with the Senate and why the filibuster needs to continue, except 
And this is where the lib has always stood. Ultimately, when it comes to the principle of the filibuster, the lib has always stood that it should be an actual oratory device where a senator gets up and starts speaking. to force a compromise. And that's my uh, take on it as the lib. And we'll talk at you next time. Taxes. Well, we are in tax season, aren't we? Isn't that fun and exciting? You know what they are.